remain standing if you would take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Mark's Gospel chapter 3 we will look at uh, verses uh, 20 through the end of the chapter let's give attention to God's word this morning Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin Uh, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now I know it's been a number of weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Mark, so let me just do a little bit of refreshing of our memories if I could. If you remember, Jesus shows up in chapter 1, just sort of burst onto the scene after we read about John the Baptist, and he demonstrates his power almost from the get-go in, in healing many people. He casts out demons, and, and, and Jesus even commanded them, don't even tell people who I am, and the demons had to obey and, and to listen. And then Jesus called certain men to follow him and to be his disciples and his apostles. And so his ministry was really taking off. Crowds of people were were following him. And then in chapter 2, we see that Jesus not only heals a lame man, but he also says, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus is declaring that he is God. And, of course, uh, the religious leaders didn't like that too much, but... Anyway, so Jesus declares that. He also reaches out to, to those that people wouldn't pay attention to, people like tax collectors, prostitutes, and, and other sitters, has meals with them. Even calls Levi, one of the tax collectors, to be one of his inner circle, to be one of his apostles, uh, to go and to follow him. And like I said, the crowds were following him. But also in chapter 2, we see that the religious leaders did not... Uh, like this, they begin to oppose Jesus. They begin to understand exactly what it is that he was saying about himself, and they just realize he could not be from God, and so they began to oppose him. They began to question him about matters regarding the Sabbath and how he and his apostles functioned. Uh, there was questions to Jesus about 
fasting and everything until finally in chapter 3, verse 6, we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so Jesus has this great uh, group of people who love him, these crowds that are following him, but also these religious leaders that have really no use for him. And so Jesus uh, continues to, to do ministry and to call even more men to follow him and to be his apostles. And then we read in verse 20, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Have you ever had experiences like that? You were so busy and had so many people around you, you didn't even have uh, the ability to eat. But that's where Jesus was. So that's where we're going to pick up today. But let me pray for us before we look at God's Word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, now as your Word is read and proclaimed, would you work by your Holy Spirit to, to bring everyone in this room and, and even those watching online as well to a point of decision, a point of reckoning where we must resolve the question, what do I make of Jesus of Nazareth? Would you bring us to the place of clarity and of submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by your word? It's for your name that we ask these things. Amen. On January 12, 2007, the Washington Post decided to conduct a, a social experiment. And so at 7.51 a.m. in the morning, in the middle of D.C. rush hour on a Friday morning, a, a nondescript young man wearing jeans and a t-shirt, I think he had a baseball cap on that said the Washington Nationals, and, and he stopped beside the trash can at the entrance to the metro station. And, and he uh, opens up his violin case, he takes out a violin, and he begins to play this beautiful music. He plays like six classical pieces. Over the next 43 minutes, 1,097 people pass, pass this young man on their way to work. Now, most of them were like most commuters that you see on TV, you know, their heads are down, their earbuds are in. You know, they have people to see, places to go. They don't have time to, to appreciate this music. They just walk right on by him. There were one or two or three people that, that stopped to appreciate the music. And when they did, they realized there was something pretty fantastic about this street performer. He was quite accomplished. Well, come to find out, this young man was Josh Bell. He was an internationally acclaimed violin virtuoso. And uh, the violin that he used was an antique violin. Uh, it was a Stradivarius made by the master himself in 1713, worth $3.5 million. And he just played three days earlier at, uh, at a packed house at the Boston Symphony Hall. And now here he is standing outside the Metro, you know, in, in a t-shirt and stuff, playing for these busy commuters. And almost nobody seemed to even notice him. Now, to be sure, a few people, those people who did stop, they did recognize that he was a man of great accomplishment. And uh, so they, like I said, dropped a dollar or two in his violin case just to show their appreciation. But this man, this instrument, this talent was something more than unusual. It was extraordinary. And yet, really, almost no one even recognized him and just walked on by him. Well, you know, the same could be said of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I wonder, you know, maybe even dare to say that's how it may be for, for many of us. That we may sense something out of the ordinary about Christ. We may even appreciate some of the things that He has said and did, but we've never really stopped perhaps to let it register. Now, for I think many of us, I know as a congregation, you're pretty biblically savvy and theologically astute and stuff, but we can know these things but to take the time to stop and to meditate upon these things and to allow those things to, to absorb into our being and to understand and to, to live out those realities in our lives as we experience the Lord Jesus Christ can sometimes be very different. And I, I you know, and we may sometimes not really stop to let that register, to consider, to let the extraordinary character of Christ's person, His words and His works begin to sink into us. We might be a lot like those busy commuters just sort of bustling past Joshua Bell in that metro that day. And for us, you know, it may look like we get up and we just sort of rush out the door and we get into our day and we get to the evening and we sit down and we realize, you know, I haven't even thought about God all day long. I've been so caught up in the things that I've done that I didn't even have time to do that. Or maybe we get up and we... We, we do have our time with the Lord, but it's like, I, I need to go ahead and I need to get this done so I can get on with my day. And so we sort of maybe rush through it a little bit more and stuff, but don't really take the time to just to savor and just to appreciate, you know, who our Savior is. Now, I'm not saying that's what we always do, but we may be tempted to do that from, from time to time. And there may be those who don't even know Christ, who, who make assumptions about Jesus. Uh, they lump Jesus in with all the other gurus and philosophers of history. And, and then they just sort of move right along like he's like nobody else or like he's like everybody else. You know, people are busy. They have places to go, people to see, things to do. And so how easy it is to forget. But what happens when we're forced to reckon with Jesus? What, what happens when Jesus' words and his work sort of push themselves to the forefront of our attention and we're brought to the brink of having to make a decision about who he really is and what that impact is to be upon our lives. In many ways, that's what this text is about that we look at today. We're, there's actually three scenes here in this text and they could be summarized in really like three different responses that we could have to Christ. And, and I'm using the words mad, bad, and glad to, res, to uh, sort of describe those three different responses. So let's look at those this morning. First of all, mad. Okay, verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now we're talking about Jesus here. His family coming, thinking he's crazy, he's mad, he's, he's a lunatic, and they're going to come to, to, to seize him. Now, the ESV translates the Greek here as uh, Jesus' family. It says, and when his family heard it. Okay, but literally the text says, of him. When those of him or those closest to Jesus. That's what it really means. So, and, and oftentimes this is an expression used in Scripture to refer to one's immediate family. So I think to, to translate this, his family, is not necessarily wrong. But it also can be translated his closest friends. Or to put it in today's language, his peeps, or his people, right? Um, and as you look at the biblical evidence, you know, for this, uh, there's a whole host of translations that would they could easily be supported from Scripture. His family, his own people, his friends. 
So the point that I'm trying to make is this, that we don't need to get so caught up to know exactly who these people are. Okay, I think his family is a very good translation, but it may not exactly been his family. But what is important to see and to recognize is that these are people that are close to Jesus. These are people who love him. These are people who are coming to him, not out of a sense of animosity, okay? We've all been on social media long enough, right? That either you've experienced this or you've seen others that experienced this where they say something on social media and boom, people like bring the hammer down on them, right? They just want to crush them for what they said. Now, if you stop and you look at those, they're not always from the same kind of people. Sometimes people bring the hammer down because what they want to do is they want to discredit people. They want to discredit what it is that they're saying. And they want to stop and they want to crush them. But there are other groups who might oppose you who do so out of love for you. Because they, they maybe are challenging you in what you're saying or maybe the way in which you're saying it. And they really want what's best for you. They actually want to help you. And so they're doing that. Well, that's what this group was like for Jesus. These were people who cared about him. And it's almost like you see here his family or his friends who are, are having an intervention, right, towards Jesus. Uh, uh, because he was one who was sort of stirring up controversy and a lot of hostility. And they believed that he had sort of lost his senses. And so they came to seize him. And that word seize is actually a very strong word. It's actually more than just an intervention. It's a word that's used at the end of Mark to describe the guards grabbing and restraining Jesus. And that's what they were wanting to do. And, and it's really uh, this whole idea of looking at somebody who's, who's a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, is a lunatic or crazy or mad is not totally uh, unusual to Scripture. I mean, if you uh, think with me uh, to the account of Acts 26 where Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And he's given an account of his life in Christ and what he means to him. And he's sharing all this. And then in the middle of his talk, then Festus uh, just, it says, speaks out loudly in verse 24. And Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy. You're mad. And that's what people were saying about Jesus, those who were closest to him, not his opponents. Well, if you think about it, this isn't necessarily anything unusual. Throughout church history, those who have taken the Word of God seriously, and they stand on that Word, and they speak from the authority of Scripture, will oftentimes sooner or later be considered out of their minds. People will begin to dismiss them. They'll begin to marginalize them. They'll begin to say, oh, they're old-fashioned, they're outdated. You know, and they'll begin to, to do away with them. I mean, think about even in Israel or uh, in Judah. Uh, you, you would have the kings who would marginalize the prophets of God because they wanted to listen to the false prophets and stuff. But uh, that's the case. Let me ask you this. In light of that, I want to ask you this question. Has anybody called you a religious fanatic? Now, you don't have to answer that out loud. But has anybody ever called you a religious fanatic? And if your answer is, no, Pastor Rick, that's never happened to me, then my next question is, why not? Why not? Now, because anyone who takes their faith seriously and speaks on the behalf of Christ and His kingdom, 
will at some point, and oftentimes at many points, will be accused of being a fanatic, of being someone who is zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ, somebody who is zealous for the Christian faith. Now, let me give a disclaimer here, okay? Because there are some people who want to consider themselves fanatics, but they're really not fanatics, they're just obnoxious, okay? And that's not what I'm talking about. And, and you see that on social media quite a bit, don't you? People, they're like, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. And it's like, no, you're suffering because you're just obnoxious. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're just not really, you're just offensive. And, and that's not the same thing. But I'm talking about those who, who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who speak the truth in love, but do so boldly and do so faithfully. And, and, and it's, it's my prayer for our church that we would all be considered fanatics. And, and if you have been called a fanatic, then let's pray that you become more of a fanatic, right? And the, that the world sees you in that way. So why did people choose to object to Christ? Well, because Jesus was calling down wrath on himself. He was saying, I am God. I am the Son of God, and, and, and I've come. I am the Messiah who has come. They were okay with the Messiah part until they began to see what that meant, how God viewed that, and then they really wrestled with that. And Jesus was not only bringing wrath down upon himself, but upon those who were around him as well. And, and oftentimes when that happens, those who are around Jesus want to flee, who want to take away. I mean, think about the disciples, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Judas shows up with the soldiers to arrest Jesus, what did the disciples do? Kids, you remember this? They took off like roaches. I mean, they ran. Okay, they did eventually, some of them sort of regrouped and came and followed Jesus, right? I mean, Peter sort of snuck into the courtyard during Jesus' trial, and he wanted to sort of see what was going to happen. And then the slave girl recognized him and said, Hey, I think you were one who was with him. Well, at that point in time, Peter did not want to be associated with Jesus. He's like, No, I wasn't. And she's like, Yeah, I think you were. And he's like, No, I wasn't. And he's like, yeah, that accent gives you away. I, you actually were with Jesus, right? And he's like, no! And then he starts swearing and stuff just because he did not want to be associated with Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to take heed, especially in the climate in which we live. We are seeing a shift in our country. And at one time, it used to be that you be, used to be able to stand up for Jesus Christ and to speak against certain sins or to say certain things that now you are now being uh, put down because you say those things. Or even internally, do you not sometimes in conversations at work want to interject, but you just know if you say something, you're going to get blasted. Or you might be afraid that your boss might view you a different way, or your neighbor may think uh, terribly of you, that you're some homophobe or, or some, other, uh, some other label of that culture. You're a racist or whatever it might be. And so you keep your mouth shut. But brothers and sisters, uh, we need to take notice that, that you not be one who flees from Christ when the going gets rough, when the crowd speaks against you and your Lord. I mean, did Jesus not say in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so we ought not to be surprised when people who look at Christ and see him as mad might also see us as his followers, as crazy and lunatics as well. But then there's another group 
that saw Jesus as bad, okay, they, they saw him as a liar, someone who, where he says he is from God, but they, they thought that he really was from somewhere else. We see that in verse 22. And it's speaking of the scribes, and they had come down from Jerusalem, probably as an official delegation of the Sanhedrin to some come check this Jesus out. Maybe the religious leaders there in Capernaum had called them in as experts to, to sort of check out the situation and to see whether Capernaum should be officially designated as what's called a seduced city, a city that had been deceived. And, and so uh, we see their response to Jesus in verse 22. They say, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Beelzebul or, or Beelzebub, as it's sometimes called. We don't have to know the origin or the meaning of that name exactly. But Jesus considers it as a reference to the devil, as the prince of demons. And, and notice what the religious leaders are doing. They're not denying Jesus' power. I mean, they've seen him heal even people with leprosy, which was just unheard of in that day. That was a death sentence. And so to have someone healed like that was unbelievable. Jesus healed such people. He cast out demons. They couldn't deny his works. What they could deny or question was the source of his works. And so they, they looked at this and they said, you know... Jesus, we believe that you are doing these things, but you are doing these things not in the name of God. You're a liar, but you're doing them in the name of Satan, in, in league with the devil. Now, now notice something. If, if you reject Jesus' claims about who he says he is, you know, with him being the Son of God, then you have to come up with other options to explain him. Because Jesus was not someone who could simply be dismissed. I mean, you think about Joshua Bell. If you stopped and you listened to him, you had to say, look, this is not just a guy who's sort of talented and he's playing on the streets. There is more to this guy than that. Jesus is the same way. I know some people want to say Jesus was a good teacher. He was a moral man, you know, whatever. But if you look at the claims of Christ... You, you have to, to uh, come to the conclusion that he was way more than that. As a matter of fact, if you're listening to me today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and, and, and you just easily dismiss him, I would challenge you to read what the Bible says about Jesus. I think it will bring you up short and help you to see that there is so much more to him. Just let him speak for himself. Read the Bible and see what it says about Jesus. And so Jesus is, is, is so unusual and extraordinary that he requires some explanation. And so Mark is telling us that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, that he is the Lord himself who came down to rescue us from our sins. And he does that in verses 23 through 27. Uh, Jesus is unmasking the irrationality of, of unbelief. Jesus uh, the religious leaders uh, make their argument, and Jesus shows them really how irrational those arguments are. The accusation is, is that, uh, that Jesus is doing these things by evil powers or by the powers of Satan. And so Jesus tells just a few uh, parables, short parables, to answer them. First one in 23 through 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but is coming to an end. 
it, it's as if Jesus is saying, come on, scribes. You know, you're, you're not thinking. You, you know, the oldest military strategy is what? Divide and conquer, right? And, and so Satan is not going to give me power so that I can defeat his armies. That just does not make sense. And so Jesus, first of all, rebukes the scribes for their foolish thinking. And, and what Jesus is really doing, and, and this is something that we can remember as we're talking to other people, he's doing what Francis Schaeffer calls taking the lid off, okay? Taking the lid off the other person's argument. Uh, Francis Schaeffer talked about removing the, the roof of a person's house and letting the full consequences of their argument hit them. You know, he's ex exposing the inner logic of the other person's argument and helps them to understand, guess what, guys? It doesn't really work. In light of the data, the things that you are, are suggesting are just ridiculous. The, in fact, it's a ridiculous position in the end. But that's actually what unbelief leads us to, into irrationality. There's a quote that expresses this well. It says, when a man stops believing in God... He doesn't believe in nothing, he believes in anything. It's not that he doesn't believe in nothing, it's that he believes in anything. You see, unbelief pushes us into irrationality. Uh, we'll go to great lengths and we'll do all sorts of mental gymnastics simply to avoid the clear conclusion to which all the evidence points to. We will embrace a credible any argument, however implausible, if only it allows us to remain in rebellion against God. That's really the goal. That's where the religious leaders were coming from. They just had to, they could not put that option of Jesus being God on the table because it didn't compute to them. I think about when I was younger, an example of this, when I was younger, uh, there were those who really had trouble with miracles and, and I'm sure that's true today still. But uh, particularly about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And so I can't remember whether it was scholars or scientists or who it was. But somebody came up with the argument. Well, what really happened was this. That the Red Sea was only knee high in water. And so the Israelites could cross the Red Sea because it was only knee high. Well, I remember a Bible teacher coming out and saying, Wow! What a miracle! That the entirety of Pharaoh's army could drown in knee-high waters. <laughs> but that's the kind of logic it is. Whenever you try to take God out of the picture and, and try to explain it in some other way, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Unbelief is irrational. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Because unbelief always would would always rather embrace irrationality than bend the knee to King Jesus. And so Jesus goes on in verse 27 and he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, if someone breaks into a house to steal the goods of the owner, he has to first of all tie up the owner because if he doesn't do that, he's not going to be able to, to take the goods. And so he has to do that. And Jesus was saying, that's, I'm explaining to you my ministry, what exactly it is that, that I am, am doing. You think that I'm working with Satan, but here, let me give you the ultimate explanation. Let me tell you what's really happening here. And so what he's saying is Satan is the strong man 
his goods, that Satan's goods, are, are people. They're human beings. They're people who are held under the dominion and under the power and the influence of Satan, either through demonic oppression or whether through illness or whatever. And Jesus is the one that plunders those goods. He's the one that delivers the people. He sets them free from satanic power and bondage and illness because Jesus is stronger than them. So Jesus says, that's what's actually happening. It's not that I'm working by Satan's, uh, by Satan's power. So Jesus came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, to announce and herald liberty of captives, and to set the prisoners free. He has come and has defeated the principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen? Amen. Our God has come with great authority and He has come with great power. And this is the reality, brothers and sisters, in which you and I get to live and, and walk in. And, and some of us know the glory and the wonder of that experience of Christ setting us free, right? And so we are able to say with Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Can you sing that song? Do you know that kind of freedom in your walk with the Lord? Do you have Christ's power working in and through you? That's why he came. He came to bring us deliverance. But then look at verses 28 through 30. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, and the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let me, let me stop there. Look at that for a moment. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. You see, Jesus came not just to give us freedom, uh, um, but to bring us forgiveness as well. In fact, the character of the nature of the freedom that Christ has given us is freedom from sin's condemning power. And so when sin wants to condemn us for the things that's done, Jesus can give us a conscience that's clean at last. And so even though we know we have done certain things, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have a clean slate, brothers and sisters. If you are here today and you are wrestling with your sin, and you're, you're listening to that voice of Satan that's, that's challenging you, that you're unworthy, that you, that you just, you know, you don't deserve it. That's a lie from hell. And you say, oh, preacher, you don't know what I've done. You don't, you don't know the wicked, festering sinkhole of sin and rebellion that's in my heart. You don't know the things that I've said. You don't know the things that I've lived. And to that I would say, you're right. I don't. But Jesus does. Jesus does. And he says, and I'll quote him, all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies we utter, whatever life of rebellion that you have been living thus far, there is pardon for you in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Brothers and sisters, do you walk in that freedom to know that you have been pardoned the idea of a pardon means there has been an offense. There has been things wrong. But you have been set free from those things. 
and those no longer define you. So there it is. If you if you would but come to Jesus, stop living your way, bend your knee to Him. Do it now, today. Come and trust in Christ, and He will set you free and make you clean. Now, within this great promise, uh, an extraordinary promise, actually, comes also a warning in verse 29. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. There is a sin that puts us beyond the possibility of pardon. Now, before we get into this, I just want to make a couple of statements. Number one, notice that Jesus doesn't say that the scribes have committed this yet. He, he's warning them that they are teetering on the brink. But it's also a warning to us to check our hearts and our lives as well. But secondly, he says he doesn't mean simply uh, that if we say bad things about the Holy Spirit, that that is blasphemy. You know, we could use God's name in vain. We could say, oh, G-O-D, or oh, L-O-R-D, or whatever it might be. And that is, can be blasphemous, to be sure, and a dreadful sin. But that's not what he's talking about here, about the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. But if you look down at verse 30, Mark actually helps us understand the real meaning of this, where he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You see, they are saying that that the tense of that is very important. It's, it's a sustained pattern with these religious leaders that they were saying about Jesus. It wasn't just one statement, but it was a sustained pattern with them. You see, what Jesus means when he warns us about the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is that it's, it's a settled disposition of the heart where we consistently ascribe to Satan the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a stubborn resistance to Jesus, which eventually expresses itself in treating Jesus as the ultimate evil in our lives. And, and he's warning us that it is possible to become so settled, so hardened in our opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit, so adverse to the gospel, that we come to see evil as good and good as evil. It, it's possible to become so closed off to the offers of God's mercy himself that our hearts become hardened. So people ask all the time, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And to which I have to say, if you're asking that question, most likely that's not the case. Because it's, it appears that the Holy Spirit is still working in your heart to convict you of your sin. What we're talking about with the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sense of our hearts becoming so hard that we, we gladly go into eternity lost, not even thinking about that. It's that kind of attitude. But brothers and sisters, Jesus' words are meant for us too, though, to warn us. If you've been mocking Jesus or explaining Him away or minimizing His message or keeping Him at arm's length or avoiding His claims... Jesus is warning you, let your heart not be hardened uh, against him. But also this warning is for us, it, it, well, it's a warning. It, it's to unsettle us in one sense and to drive us to the only safe refuge that we have. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the one that we go to for safety, for freedom and forgiveness. And so you have these people that 
that see Jesus and think that he's mad. You have some people who think that he is glad or is uh, bad. But then also those who think that are glad that Christ exists. Uh, and uh, they see him for actually who he is, that he is Lord, and they are glad of it. In verses 31 through 35, we see Jesus' uh, mother and brothers coming to get in to see him. Now, it could be that this is uh, tied in with the reference earlier about his uh, family coming to seize him. And maybe this is the situation where they've showed up at the house where Jesus is. There's such a large crowd, they can't even get into the house, even though they've come to seize him. That may be exactly what's happening. We don't know. But uh, Jesus, in verse 35, we read Jesus describes those who do the will of the Father and he describes them as those who are of his spiritual family. Now, I want you to know, this doesn't mean that Jesus has total disdain for his earthly family, that he totally rejects them. That's, that's not the case. Uh, Jesus, even as he's hanging on the cross, and he knows that he's going to give up his spirit soon, looks down and he sees his mother, and he has compassion on her, and he knows she needs to be taken care of, and he loves her, so he gives her to John, that John could care for her. And, uh, and so Christ does love her. What's happening is here that Jesus is acknowledging that whatever claims of love and honor his natural family have upon him, God, his Father, has a higher claim on his life. And, and he was not prepared to abandon the work entrusted to him because of pressure from his family brought to bear upon him. And so he's, he's not going to make obedience to the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, and an excuse for disobeying the first commandment, to have no other gods before me. And so he will not use honoring his father and his mother. He will not make family life into such an idol that obedience to the call and claims of his God might be set aside to pursue it. And so Jesus... Uh, uh, in one sense sort of sets an example for us because he calls us to that same kind of radical obedience uh, He'll do that throughout mark But right now he shows us that he will not call us to anything that he is not willing to do himself He will not call us to bear any cost that he does not first of all bear And so here is Jesus facing the costly implications of putting the call and the claim of God first in his life and the reality is, brothers and sisters, when we come to Jesus, there is a personal cost. Jesus is aware of that, that to follow him, to trust the gospel, and to put him first in our daily lives, uh, in our daily priorities, to be fanatics will involve a personal cost. I mean, it could divide us from our families, maybe extended family who are unbelievers and they don't understand why we think Christ is so important. Uh, it might be a loss of income. Maybe uh, you'll be looked over for promotions at work purely because of your Christian faith and, and what you say and how you act. It may be that you'll be excluded socially. I mean, we're already seeing that where churches have been targeted even during, during the pandemic in, in some cases. And yet, as Jesus calls us to that kind of radical, costly obedience, it is the very obedience he himself models as he puts the call of the Lord his God ahead even of the call and claims of his family. And we need to think about this. Because don't we live in a time when the idolatry of the family has a powerful pull on so many of us? I mean, I, I see this a lot even in reform circles, where the family is first. 
and then the church is second, you know, and so on and so forth. And and we got to be careful with that. I'm not saying that we don't love our families. God has called us to love these things simultaneously, but we have to be careful that we don't get things out of whack. Um, where in our order to love and serve and make much of our families, uh, the Lord who ought to be first and claim our lives is sometimes sort of kicked to the curb. And, and sometimes we give Jesus our leftovers, you know, when it, when it comes to our lives because we're so focused on our families and wanting to give them those things. We have to be careful not to fall into that trap. Well, that was not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us to imitate him. And so he calls us to do the will of God. Those who do the will of God, they are my brothers and sisters and mothers, he said. So, brothers and sisters, as we are bearing reproach from the world, as we are enduring the cost of discipleship, we need to also understand that while there is a cost, there is great compensation as well. Um, he, Jesus is saying, you know, in essence, when, when the law and will of God is first in your life, when that is your driving passion, not your own desires, not your family, not the things that are around you, uh, when, when trusting Christ, you're willing to follow Him and to obey Him, we become His family. We become family. You become my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. It's not all cost. There are glorious compensations to following the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, there, is, uh, there are relationships in the family of God that, that just cannot be experienced in, in a natural family. And uh, that's not to say, like I said, we don't value our natural families. And I know the Lord has given us many strong families in our church. And I'm so thankful for that. But, but there is a glorious blessing in being part of the family of God as well. And so Jesus describes those who come to see Him as Lord. People who submit their will, their desires to instead follow Him and do His will, making them oh so glad. You know, one thing I, I, I want to say just as a clarification. When we follow Jesus and put Him first, that's when we'll be able to actually put our family in the place it ought to be. As we focus upon Christ first, then He will put that everything in line in our life the way it ought to be. But as you come this morning, the question really is this. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Not just intellectually in your head, but in your life. How do you view Him? Do you view Him as Lord, liar, or lunatic, as C.S. Lewis says? Or another way to say that is, do you view Him as good, bad, or mad? Think about that. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word that's preached today. We thank you, God, that you love us so much that you have brought your word to us. And we pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to, to follow you, uh, Lord, to enjoy you. Uh, it it could be so easy, God, for us to claim you as our Savior, Lord, and yet uh, want you to serve us. And, and to put our will and our desires above you. So, Lord, even for those of us here this morning who would call you Lord, 
we pray that we might experience the joy of that, the joy of having our wills frustrated, the, the joy of knowing that you won't give us the little petty things that our hearts oftentimes pursue in this world, but you have greater and more glorious things that you will give to us. So, Lord, help us to, to submit to these, submit to you, Lord, that we might truly understand the joy of the Lord in our lives. We thank you, O oh God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.